Ephesians chapter 3, I want to read, starting in verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to stop there this morning. Lots of technical details, little places and rabbit trails that I could very easily get lost in, so forgive me if we do. I do not have time to go through all of these references, so if you are interested, I, ensure, I encourage you, if you're just taking notes, to write down the references. You can look them up. It's going to be very scripture-heavy this morning, or reference-heavy. Again, we don't have time to turn to all of them. Verse 6, we pick up this morning. We looked at 1 through 5 last week and kind of focused in on the mystery of Christ and how Paul got this mystery, and that was by way of revelation through the Holy Spirit. I encouraged each of us to actively and daily ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and, and give us greater revelation of His Word, greater revelation of the nature of God Himself. But we pick up in 6, it is continuing the same thought. He gives kind of clarification of what that mystery of uh, to the Gentiles that Paul had been given is. He kind of tells us a little bit about it, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because we uh, did talk about this back on January 24th. Um, if you are new to us or want to go back, you can listen to the sermons online. They're on all the podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify. Um, you can look for TSCC sermons or on our website. And uh, you can catch that sermon and catch up on that. We did discuss that. But by way of reminder, I want you just to see again the three things that this mystery is as Paul is talking about them. Number one, that Gentiles are fellow heirs. I feel like I should be in a classroom setting and have everyone say heirs. All right. We need some response in here. Number one, they're fellow heirs. And you can read more about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Also, in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 17, um, I've got a note there if you want to look that back up on your own time. Two, Gentiles are fellow members of the body. Again, this has already been discussed in great detail in chapter 2. We talk about the God bringing together the two into one body, into one flesh in verses 15 and 16. That's really the same picture. They are fellow members of one body. In Christ Jesus, there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all made one. Christ came to tear down that dividing wall that, that was up before, and it would allow certain people into the synagogue, and then even a, a smaller group even into the Holy of Holies. But now that it's all been 
divided or that dividing wall has been torn down and we all have that same equal access. Chapter 2, verse 18, that's what it says, through one spirit to the Father. So it's Christ Jesus that brings us together into one body. The third thing that he says this mystery is, is that Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, I believe, that this is the fatness of the olive tree. There's this wealth and depth of, of being in Christ, and, and all of these promises, are there. we don't have time to go in them this morning. And it's just such a beautiful spiritual picture of what we inherit in Christ Jesus, this fatness. In the, in the, in the day that this was being written, olive trees were, you know, they, they weren't necessarily rare, but it took a tremendous amount of effort and work to get olive oil. And so it was a fairly valuable commodity. And he wants us to understand that this oil, this oil which is also a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is not something that we can be flippant about. But in Christ Jesus, he says, you have as much access to the produce of that oil as you can even carry. Eternal life a promise in Christ. We have peace in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in Christ. If there's a blessing or a promise for the Jew, we also have access as the Gentile to partake in it. Now, note that these three things, according to verse 6, are granted through the gospel. Why is it important that we emphasize the gospel? It is how we inherit these blessings and that we're heirs with Christ. Because it's the gospel that levels the, the foundation, and that is of Christ Jesus. Some would come with different doctrines or different religions, and they would say, you've got to pay this amount of money so that there's a restraint on those that may not have as much. Some would say, oh, well, you attain it by intellectualism, that you have to understand and get this revelation. But see, the gospel levels the playing field. It's simple. Put faith in Christ Jesus. And it's by faith in Christ Jesus that we are heirs, members of one body, and partakers of the promise in Christ. Again, January 24th, if you want a greater teaching on that verse. Verse 7. So these three things, which are the mystery, he says, I was made a minister. Now this Greek word is diakonos. We get our English word, deacon. Who knows what a deacon is? servant. It's, we talk about, uh, you know, how the apostles were being stretched too thin in their ministry, and it was suggested that they, that they raise up seven different individuals, seven men, to help the needs of the church. These were deacons, diakonos, and so they were servants to do kind of the lay ministry or different various aspects of the ministry so that the apostles could focus on the teaching of the Word. That's what a deacon is. You hear the word deacon, deaconess, it's most probably from an obsolete Greek word, diako, which means to run errands. So Paul, I believe in this context, he's putting himself in humility. He's saying, I'm just a waiter. I'm just serving you. I'm, God has given me the food to feed to you. I'm just bringing it out to the table. Who's he serving? Christ. What is he serving? The mystery of Christ, those three things we looked at in verse 6. Now this is echoing back to verse 2. He says that he's a stewardship of God's grace. That's the ministry for him. He has been held, he's been given the platter to serve the food, if you will, if you're following along in that analogy of being a waiter. He was a taskmaster of bringing this revelation 
of two becoming one body to the Gentiles. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul also says that he was a diakonos of the oikonomia. It's the deacon or the minister of the household of affairs. So he had revelation that the Holy Spirit gave to him that, Paul, I'm entrusting you with bringing to the Gentiles this mystery of faith in Christ Jesus alone. That was the burden in which Paul had. And, and you can see this kind of conflict's not the right word, but excuse it, if you will, of, of how Paul often would go to the synagogues. He really had a heart for the Jewish people. Why? Because he understood the word, and he would first often go to the synagogues and try and convert the Jews, and, and we see through Scripture over and over again how he'd be rejected or kicked out or refused, and he would end up converting lots of Gentiles or Roman citizens in each and every city that he went to. Paul was given this special task of carrying this ministry to the Gentiles, and yet, equally, he still had this love and heart for the Jew. He was trying to bring them both together because the Lord had given him the revelation of that mystery of two becoming one. He was made a taskmaster, a minister, a deacon, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. I have a note here. It says, whatever roles God has for you, they are gift of God's grace. Whatever function God has for you in the church, we have to understand is a gift of his grace. You know, you can't earn ministry, a ministry position. It's grace, unmerited favor. Getting something you don't deserve is how we sort of loosely describe that word grace. Getting something you don't deserve, grace, charis in Greek. He gives us talents according to our abilities. We see this parable in Matthew chapter 25. But it's, there's a, sometimes people look at this as a little bit of conflict because there's actually two parables of um, talents. And we see also in Luke chapter 19 that Christ gives a, a little bit of a twist on it and says that he's giving to all of his workers the same amount. And he wants them to go out and make more money, be due diligent with his resources. The word is pragmatomia. It is to keep occupied or to busy oneself. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus was teaching to keep busy in the kingdom things. I've given all of you the same amount of share. Now go out and keep yourself busy and make more for my kingdom. In other words, advance my kingdom. But in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches it a little bit different. He said to one, he gave one. To another, five. To another, ten. He gives them different talents according to each of their own ability. Guess what that word is? Dunamis. Power. According to their own power. He says, I want you to expand my influence according to the grace given to you, and I'm only giving this to you according to your own abilities. Now, Paul, I don't believe, is trying to brag about this special calling. Rather, he's trying to explain how it came about to him. He's trying to show them and saying, hey, here's my credentials. I'm the least of all. We're going to read that in a minute. I'm a persecutor of the Jewish people, yet somehow God chose me to be a steward of this mystery. So he's speaking with the credential of Christ Jesus, not of something that he sort of learned in seminary, not of something that he got off the internet, which is some weird forum, not something that he paid for. Oh, 
give us $100,000 and I'll tell you the secrets to life. He said, I was minding my own business killing Jews. And the Holy Spirit came up all in my business and blinded me for no reason. And this is what he gave to me. So now I'm passing it along to you. Verse 8, he says, the very least of all saints. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, that specifically he was the least because he persecuted the church of God. I think that's what he's referencing. He said, this grace was given to me. Listen, when you have a special calling on your life, you can either recognize it as only by grace, unmerited favor that you are where you are, or else your pride can puff you up. Oh, we talked about this in Sunday school. How often does pride sort of get in there and ruin ministry? How many times? Over and over we see men and women of God, whether it be pride or uh, moral failure or monetary greed or deception because of popularity. Oh, we need to keep all of those things in check and we need to understand that anything we have related to the spiritual realm and related to ministry in the kingdom of God comes simply because of His grace. Lord, humble me. The moment you see your pastor getting proud and arrogant, rebuke me, please. Hopefully in private. Whether you're a pulpit preacher or a low-rung lay, we need to guard against pride, and the only way to guard against pride is to recognize that none of us deserves any of it anyway. Charles, Charles Spurgeon said, The fuller a vessel becomes, the deeper it sinks in the water. A plentitude of grace is a cure for pride. In other words, recognize, the more you recognize that all of it is a gift from God anyway, the more you sink into the blessings of Christ. He says this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. This Greek word preach means to announce good news. It's like the angel coming and bringing good news to the shepherds, same word. He's announcing good news to us. What's he preaching? The unfathomable riches of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to spend time on the unfathomable riches at this time. We certainly talked a lot about them in chapter 1 of Ephesians. You can go back to last fall and kind of look at those. We have so many blessings in Christ Jesus. But I certainly think back to this verse of 2 Corinthians 8 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We have these riches in Christ Jesus, unfathomable riches. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever sailed across the ocean. Anyone? Yes, in a boat. Not necessarily sailed, but spent time on a boat, not flown. I think, I, I wish Alan were here this morning. He's spent some time on the water in the Navy. Now, I've been on the beach, and I love the beach. And you can look out. I don't know how many. Does anyone know how far you can see from the horizon? I've heard something like 30 miles. I don't know what it is. Seven. Okay, seven miles. See, we got some scholars in here. Some, some beach experts is what it is. <laughs> now, if you get up a few flights of stairs, you can see a lot further. It's because of the shape of the earth, obviously. For those that are flat earthers, sorry. This is just what science tells us. But you can see out a certain number of miles but when you get into a boat, and I've been in a boat, we, uh, on a, a blessing of a trip in Mexico, we, um, it was kind of bizarre, we had a, a, 
a mission trip. We went down as, when I was in high school and we got to work with an orphanage. At the end of the trip, we got to have like a fun day, which I kind of wish we didn't do, honestly, because I would have rather spent time with the orphans and use money that way. But anyway, we went to the Pacific um, and sailed out about 10 miles on a catamaran to Seal Island. And we got to um, snorkel with crystal blue water. It was 80 feet where we anchored in and you could see to the bottom. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And here we were, slow getting out to the island against our competitor, compatriots who had motorboat. We were slow getting out there, but on the way back, we got the sail behind us and we beat them back to the harbor just by the wind. It was a really cool experience. But while we're out there, you get so far out that you actually lose sight of the shoreline. And you have this kind of epiphany about just how big the ocean is. You feel like you've been sailing for hours and hours and hours. And you're only about 10 miles off the coast. And here we have oceans, thousands of miles. And it's like we would never understand how big they are until maybe you've flown up over top of them and you get to sea and you lose sight of all the land or you sail out in the middle, and this is kind of the picture that I have of Paul with these unfathomable riches. It's like all his life he's been walking along the coast admiring how big the ocean is, but he doesn't realize how unfathomably deep and how wide and and just how big the riches are in Christ and how he's getting to his point in his life where he's out in the middle of a boat now and he's saying, I can't see the shore anymore. It's unfathomable. You've got to come out here with me. He's overwhelmed by all that we have in Christ Jesus, and that's what I want you to understand is that most of us sit on the shore looking out over the ocean. We say, oh, it's great. We got the love. We got salvation. We got peace. And Jesus is saying, come on out in the boat. I got more for you to understand. Again, this is connected to, verse 9 is connected to verse 8. It says, He wanted to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches, and 9 says, and to bring to light. So these two things go together. Grace was given to him to do two things, to preach and to bring to light. Now we've arrived at what I perceive to be an interesting juncture. That is, your Bible may be anywhere from mildly different to completely unrecognizable from what I just read in verse 9. So I would really love to teach the differences and share my opinion on what I believe to be the correct translation, but I'm under advisement that um, that would be better suited for a classroom outside of a Sunday service rather than to hold the majority of you hostage while three or four of us geek out on the Novum Testamentum Grace or the Textus Receptus and which one is correct. So I have printed out some resources for you. They are in the foyer. Um, you can pick up, there's a couple sheets if you're interested, just comparing these two verses between the kind of two modern translations. Your English Bible, in large, is translated off of different Greek compilations, okay? One of them is one, one's the other, so it may say something a little bit different. That's the point in this. And I've printed out some resources to help you kind of figure out and do a study. It's not important. They are different, but neither one of them makes a major theological claim or error. That said, if you want to do some bigger study on that, there's also an eight-page PDF. Um, I've got to look it up here. It's by Jeff Riddle. Um, that's printed as well and should be paper clipped together with Dr. James White's uh, refutation of his opinion on that verse. 
It's a 27-page PDF. You can do some light reading on that this afternoon if you'd like. I found it quite interesting this week, but some of you may not like that. Moving along. So as I've done before, I'm going to stick to what the New American Standard 1995 says for our analysis. That's what I'm preaching from. Notice again, according to this verse, the mystery of which we are now partakers was never really an afterthought of God as we have for several weeks spoken of. It was hidden. It was not fully communicated to this degree beforehand. It says, for ages it was hidden, but nonetheless God in his wisdom was revealing it to man in stages. And we come to verse 10, of which, again, uh, I can't break this verse up in an easy fashion we're going to try and get through one more verse today, and uh, so let's, let's read that verse. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is manifold. Polypoikolos, something like that, means variegated, many colors. You think of Joseph's coat of many colors. Multifaceted wisdom. He says, so that the manifold wisdom might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This explains how God will reveal his wisdom and to whom he will reveal it. How will he reveal it? Well, he will reveal it through the assembly. That Greek word we talked about is ecclesia or ecclesia. It's translated into English as church, which I believe is not really a good translation. Understand, when you see church, it's most likely the word assembly, the gathering together of two or three. We talked about this a few weeks ago, where, they are, where we are gathered together to govern or make governmental or ruling decisions. This is a borrowed word from the Romans. And it's, it's actually the secular word to describe the seat of power. You know, in the Old Testament, we see it even in Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot was coming in. We see this uh, governing that would happen at the city gates. We even read it, alluded to it this morning in Sunday school again, that they went outside the gates and there they found a, a people group led by presumably Lydia where there was worship and prayer. And so there's this, this seat of power, which in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, was taking place in the city gates. It was this government that would make decisions that would regard or be related to that city. We gave this to, I gave this to a definition back in December about Ecclesia. It's an assembly of the people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. Again, Church, your word church in English, really in Greek, means an assembly of the people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. What do we do when we're coming together for assembly? We're supposed to be ruling and governing and binding up the things of hell that ought to be bound and loosing up the things in heaven that ought to be loosed on this earth. That's what assembly is. When two or three are gathered together in his name... He's here with us, and so God gives us the authority of Christ Jesus to bind up the strongholds of the enemy and to loose the kingdom of God over Blacksburg and the New River Valley. That's what assembly is. That's why I don't like the word church. We go to church. Great, we worship and we hear a word. But when you go to assembly, your mind shifts and say, I am going to bind up the enemy, and I'm going to loose the glory of God over the New River Valley. That's the assembly. 
Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. In other words, Peter, you have the authority, the governmental aspect of the devil of Hades, where they have that seat of power and make those decisions, will never overpower the assembly of God because you are in Christ and have my authority. That's where the decisions are made at the gate, the command center of hell. Okay, we digressed. Assembly, I told you we would do that a few times. We must understand that it is the assembly of God that declares the wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10. It's not the individual believer. Now, the individual believer can declare the mystery of God to some degree, but really what Paul is saying in this passage, if we're going to honor it, is saying that the wisdom of God comes through something different. It's coming through the believers gathering together to rule or govern. That's how the mystery of salvation is going to be broadcast in the heavenly places. I believe one of the primary functions of the church the assembly is to proclaim the justice and mercies of God to the angels. Say, wait a second, I thought church was a place we grow. It's a place where I get fed, right? It's a comfortable place we go to on Sundays so we feel good about ourselves when we leave. No. The assembly, or one of the primary functions of the assembly, if you will, is eventually in the future we will proclaim the justice and the mercy of God to the angels. Hang with me. This is going to be near impossible to articulate this in a condensed and concise manner simultaneously. But in order for us to scratch the service, I need you to grab out your shovels and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to dig a little deeper. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10 through 12. 10, 11 for context. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It's just that, that's just suggesting that the people were constantly looking about when the time of Christ and salvation was going to come. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, prophets, verse 10, that they that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through who, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the prophets were writing things they didn't know about for the benefit of us in the time of writing, Peter's writing this, that we would have better revelation and understand when the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal those things to us, the end of verse 12. Things into which the angels long to look. What are the angels longing to look into? All of the things that have been revealed to us through the Holy Spirit of which the prophets were speaking about in times past. Now, what on earth does this all mean? The salvation that you and I have in Christ, which was revealed by the Holy Spirit first to mankind, not to God's angels, Greek word angelos, or messengers, God decided to give it to humankind, not angels. That's why it says in verse 12 that they long to look to those things. Or more literally, the New American Standard says, or to gain a clear glimpse. The angels wanted to get a glimpse of salvation. It was hidden from them. 
Why? And that's what I want to get to to the bottom of this morning. Why would God withhold revelation of the mystery of salvation from his angels, you might be wondering? Or is that just me? Just me, okay. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. And this is important because I believe it is all part of God's master plan in punishing evil. This is a lot of theological, I told you it's going to get real technical this morning, but this is all related to exactly what God is going to do in these end times as we look forward to the eternal fire. We play a role in this. Hang with me. Now, in order for us to understand exactly what this statement means that God desires to use mankind in preaching justice and mercy to the angels, we need to probably back up probably most ignored aspect of the major categories in systematic theology is probably angelology, which is the study of angels. So I'm going to give you a very quick little bulleted, concise manner of what we know about angels according to Scripture. Number one, we know that angels were created. They were probably created before day one of creation. We don't know for sure, but you can look to Job 38, 4 through 7, talks about the angels rejoicing when the foundations of the earth were laid. Angels, we know, are incorporeal. That means that they consist of no material matter. That's Hebrews 1, 7, Ephesians 6, 12. But we also know that they can take on physical bodies as needed. Genesis 18 and 19, Hebrews 13, 2. Third, they are always spoken of in masculine form and are even referred to as the sons of God. Okay, so to recap, angels were created by God, they are not material, and they are male-ish. However, that's described in Hebrew and in Greek. It's not necessarily important for our discussion today. I'm just teaching a little bit about angels, because we don't talk about it a lot, do we? Fourth, they are considered to be more knowledgeable than man, but not omniscient, not all-knowing like God. Lesser than God, but... They have more knowledge than man does. 2 Samuel 14, 20, Matthew 24, 36. They are said to be stronger than man, but not omnipotent. 2 Peter 2, 11, Revelation 12, 7. They can walk and roam around, but are not omnipresent. Job 1, 7, Daniel 10, 10 through 14. Angels, no doubt, were created good. Genesis 1, 31, just as man was. We are told man, on the other hand, of all of these aspects of angels, were created lower than the angels, Hebrews 12, 7. 2, 7, excuse me. Less knowledgeable, less powerful, and physically restrained to the natural realm. Then why on earth would God want to use the lesser of his creations to teach the angels who were mightier something? And this is why I want to hang here and explain Ephesians 3.10 because there's a really powerful thing here that we have to understand. The angels understand it. They know that there is this because they've seen the scriptures and the prophecies that man is going to declare these things to them, but they don't understand what those things are yet in its fullness. We have a role that eventually will put us at higher rank than angels in a sense. Again, hang with me. I believe that in God's mysterious wisdom, his plan is and was to use man, the lesser of the beings, to teach proper headship and submission to the angels. Hear me out. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. 
Male and female, he created them. Both together reflecting the image and the glory of God. Yahweh God himself represented reflecting his image. All while we were made a little lower than the angel, the angels, the fullness of God's glory has not yet been realized. We see now dimly, right? 1 Corinthians. But at one time, we will experience the fullness of the glory of God. In other words, there will be a time when we will surpass the angels in rank. Now, hang with me. Who sinned first, Lucifer or Adam? Well, obviously, the devil did because he was there to deceive Adam before Adam sinned, right? Okay? He was in the garden deceiving man before man sinned. But be not mistaken, I'm not suggesting that the devil is to blame for our sin. I would never blame Adam and Eve for our inherited sin nature. I dare not think for a moment that I would have done anything different if had I been given the chance. But if Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you may know those of passages without knowing that you know those of passages, describing Satan's fall from heaven, if those things truly are describing the rebellion of Lucifer in the subsequent fall of sinful angels, and in consideration of 2 Peter 2.4, which clearly indicates that angels are and will be punished individually and not as a race, What I get out of Scripture is this, and I'm going to let you in on the secret. God was so displeased with Lucifer and the fallen angels that he designed hell as an eternal punishment for them and not for mankind. You say, Pastor, that's crazy. You've gotten heresy in you. Well, let me tell you something that Jesus said while he was on earth. Matthew 25, 41. And I know this is a lot to digest, but this is about, again, a topic we don't discuss enough But if you can understand why salvation is such a beautiful thing for us and why the angels are longing to look into it and get a glimpse and understand this mystery. Jesus tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. That doesn't mean that God didn't know the end from the beginning and say, okay, I know if I create this whole situation, there's going to be lots of humans that go there. But it was specifically made with them in mind. Now, God is grieved over mankind. He desires none should perish, right? But not so with the angels. It was asked of me a while ago, could God forgive the angels if there was an opportunity? And I'll tell you one thing. According to the book of Hebrews, he does not give help to the angels, but to the sons of Abraham. God does not extend the same level of mercy and grace to the angels as he does to us. Why? Because we carry the image of God, although tainted tainted as it is in the sinful nature that we have inherited, God wants to give us an opportunity to come and restore that glorious image of himself back to perfection. Now, by way of reiteration, anyone who does not believe in Christ will absolutely be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil. That is, if man does not receive salvation by faith through by grace through faith in Christ, we have the same destination as the angels, but hell was created for them. But because man was made in the image of God, unlike the angels, God has given us a special function in the eternal judgment, back to proclaiming justice and mercy to the angelic host. We're almost there. You're doing great. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul tells us that we will judge the angels. What on earth does that mean? I don't know. We'll have to wait till heaven, I guess. The Greek word for judge is krino, which means to rule or to govern. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, when it says you will judge angels, it's you will actually rule and govern over the angels. Do you remember what the Greek word for church is? Which is to rule or to govern. So what is being said is that one day mankind will have authority over the angels. Believers in heaven will take part of the judgment of the fallen angels and ex- exercise authority over them. That's mostly, most likely what this means. Well, how does that work? I'm not sure. But it's for these reasons that these, the angels long to look, 1 Peter 2.12. Now, of course, our future rank can only happen because Christ has been given authority. Okay, and that we share in that authority, Ephesians chapter 1. This is all tying together now. Hopefully you can start to see these pieces. Why it's important that we understand Christ Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and that we also share in that authority over the angels. Matthew 19, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 12, Revelation 24. I told you there's going to be a lot of scripture. This is where this whole idea of mankind teaching the proper headship in submission to the angels comes into play. Does anyone remember now, here's a trick question for you, why Paul instructs women to have a head covering when they're praying and prophesying? Who remembers why? Um, where's this going, Pastor? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You You're ready? You're not ready for that? He says, because of the angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. What on earth does a head covering have to do with the angels? This is my revelation and understanding as the Lord gave it to me this week. Isaiah 14, we have a description of the devil realizing how beautiful he is when he was named Lucifer. God is writing through Isaiah. He says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit in the mount of assembly. In the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan saw himself as being able to ascend to the places where Elohim sat. And he tried to usurp God's sovereign authority. Now listen. Satan deceived himself and was thrown out of the presence of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Eve usurped Adam's authority. She was deceived, 2 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, and was thrown out of the presence of God, obviously along with Adam, but I'm focusing on Eve right now. There's a type and shadow here. Have you considered why Adam's punishment was not the same as Eve's all the way back to Genesis chapter 3? Do you remember part of her punishment? God said, your desire will be for your husband, but what? He will rule over you, Genesis chapter three sixteen. Now this is describing conflict. What it literally means in the Hebrew is, toward your husband you desire, but he will rule. Toward your husband you desire, he will rule. 
So we have this picture of submission, ruling, and pride. Who then is going to rule over the angels? Well, obviously, first and foremost, Christ Jesus, the Son of God. But neglect not that we who are in Christ rule by extension. But there's this conflict. The devil doesn't get mad because Jesus has all the authority and he still refuses to submit to Christ Jesus. So why are we here on the earth? Well, God has given this authority by extension to the assembly to bring into submission the angels and all of those beings in the spiritual realm. So when a woman covers her head while worshiping the Father, she's expressing submission. She's expressing the, to the authority in her life. And what God, I believe, through that picture of Paul talking to the Corinthians is saying is that she is broadcasting in the heavenly realm what proper submission to the King of Kings looks like. I posit that a head covering was never meant to shame the wearer. Rather, it was meant to shame the devil of his pride and his failed coup. God was trying or is trying and will eventually teach all of the angels what proper submission and authority looks like. And he's using his lesser of all the creations, mankind, to do it to them. And so to the degree that a wife submits godly to a godly husband and to the degree that the church submits to the bridegroom, the angels are being preached the proper submission to the Father. And this is the reminder of submission to the Father that declares the future justice of God to them. He declares mercy to us and he declares justice to those that would puff themselves up and have been thrown out of heaven. That is weak and sinful man, yet through the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, we are tasked with revealing mercy to the angels as a testimony of God's grace. And we're also at the same time pronouncing his justice of impending doom, the eternal lake of fire which was created for them. We're reminding them every time that there's proper submission to Jesus Christ as the church, the angels get reminded of what's coming their way. Now this last phrase in the heavenly places is talking about both good and fallen angels. All of them in the spiritual realm. We're teaching all of them. Some of them long to look into this mystery. They don't understand it yet. They will. Some of them still refuse to believe it. So the devil's scheming. He's fighting back. He's kicking back and screaming. The same way there's been this conflict and struggle between woman and man since creation, since the fall of man in the garden, there's the same struggle going on between the church and the devil. But ultimately, there will be one day when they understand fully because we get to crush the head of the serpent the rest of the way, and he will understand what submission looks like. I want to read this verse in Ephesians 1 last time. Ephesians 3.10 in the Amplified Translation says, The purpose is that through the church, the complicated Many-sided wisdom of God in all its infinite variety and innumerable aspects might now be made known to the angelic rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers in the heavenly sphere. How are the demonic forces in the spiritual realm to be taught and hear the gospel of Christ Jesus? Through the assembly. We are called for something greater than our own individual salvation and sanctification. So many Christians give their life to Christ. They say, that's it. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But that's not the end of the story. God says, I want to use you. Anytime you get together with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you get to rule over the, the, the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. By extension, through the authority that's been given to my son, Jesus Christ, who earned it. And for so many people, we get together and we say, 
oh, well, that's great, church was great, I got filled, and it's just our short-sightedness looks at what's going on and how it affects us, but God is saying, don't you get it? I made you in my image for a great purpose. I want to take you, and I want to teach all of the angels that failed. I want to teach the devil, and I'm going to use you to do it. As you submit to me, oh, Lucifer himself is going to learn what proper submission to the king of kings looks like. John Stott, 20th century commentator and preacher, he says this, it is as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it, act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places.